Awesome. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13. This is the last week of our Advent series as we've been in this series called Longing, uh, waiting with God for God, longing. Advent is a season of waiting and it starts in the darkness and you move towards the light and you can see we have one last candle to light this morning, the candle of love as we, as we moved from hope uh, to, to peace, to joy, uh, and now to love. Uh, I was flipping through Twitter this week, like I do pretty often, getting my news and some news that I want to get and some, a lot of news that I wish I'd never seen. And uh, I saw this tweet, and I'm going to put it on the screen because it just caught me kind of funny. And I don't know who Susie Homemaker is, but she said, if Paul saw the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. And it made me chuckle. And I read it to Lindsay. And I laughed because it's both comical and true, Right? And if you read the New Testament, you, you know that often Paul would write letters to the churches, um, some good letters, some not so good letters. And what would that letter look like to us? And you have great letters like a Philippians and full of joy, and then you have a letter like Galatians, which is not so full of joy or easy to read. It's a correction, and it's rebuke. And we get letters like 1 Corinthians, and if you, if you don't know much about 1 Corinthians, it was extremely dysfunctional church. I mean, you had... They had normalized sexual perversion in the church, and nobody seemed to care. Nobody was saying anything about it. Yeah, just let it, let it go. And they were, they were suing each other. So how do you go and transform a world when you can't even work out your differences among each other? And fighting over who was in charge and who was the best. I follow Apollo, so I follow Paul. And Paul's like, it doesn't matter. We all just sowed seed, right? And then you get to the end of 1 Corinthians, and I actually wrote my thesis on this in graduate school about spiritual gifts operating in the church. The irony of all of this is spiritual gifts are given to us in the church to build up the body of Christ and to bring us to unity. And yet spiritual gifts often divide the church. It's been very divisive, you know, denominationally and different things like that. And, and here you are in 1 Corinthians 13. We read this at weddings, not really what it's talking about, but that's cool. And he's talking about everybody wants the really big gifts. Everybody wants the supernatural gifts. Everybody wants to prophesy and speak in tongues. Nobody wants to make the coffee. Right? Nobody wants to hold open the door. Nobody wants to you know, make the, the copies, whatever it may be. You know? And they're arguing. And there's this division. Oh, I'm better than you because my spiritual gift's better. And then Paul lovingly confronts the church, as he often does in 1 Corinthians 13.1. And I know you may have heard this, but listen to these words again, fresh and new. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge... And if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I feel like we need to be reminded of this more than ever before in the time that we're living in. And I, I actually did something this week, and I, I love to write. I love to journal and things of that nature. And so I kind of played the what-if game. What if Paul were writing to this to us today, to America? Remember, not every, when Paul's writing to church, not everybody in the church is doing those things, but enough people were doing those things. Paul says that we have to talk about it. We have to address it. What if it said something like this? If I'm knowledgeable of political insights and current affairs, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging symbol. 
If I have the ability to eloquently articulate complex issues, have educated opinions, believe myself to be right, or if I'm passionate about certain subjects, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I have influence or a platform to voice my opinions, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If my belief systems are in order and I check all the boxes of a Christian, but do not have love, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not seek to destroy. Love does not dehumanize people made in the image of God. Love does not seek to create enemies. Love is not judgmental and doesn't use truth as a weapon. Love is humble. Love is self-sacrificing. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. If we're not careful, it's easy for the church to lose or forget what should be the defining characteristic of our life, right? Love should be the single, single distinguishing characteristic of the people of God. And if we forget that or lose that, what do we have? Scripture would say nothing, nothing. First John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. And it's pretty clear here. It's, it's pretty confrontational, this passage. If, if you fail to love other people, it's probably because you failed to be loved by God and to understand the love of God in your life because somebody who understands God's love will reciprocate that into the lives of others. And if we're claiming to be followers of Jesus, that has to be the defining characteristic for you and I. But how many know it's easy, easily to be discipled by, by Jesus and Scripture it's also easy to be discipled by the culture around us, and the culture around us is not moving towards love, are they? Who or what is discipling us? Are we cultural disciples? Culturally, we are moving to a place where me, I am the center of everything. In a post-Christian secular society, it's not even the overt rejection of God as Lord, it's saying, I would rather be Lord. I wanna be on the center of everything. I matter the most. Our culture would say, uh, in order to be right, someone has to be wrong. In order to win, someone has to lose. In order to be a hero, you must have an enemy. Or maybe we're in danger of becoming political disciples, which we are. Politics are discipling a nation on how to treat each other. I'm telling you, we have to reclaim how we treat people. Made in the image of God. Politics are saying, if I disagree with you, then I can create whatever narrative fits my agenda. And if I strongly believe in something strongly enough, I can make you an enemy, someone to be destroyed altogether, right? I mean, it grieves me as, I, as we go into a political season, I have to prepare myself emotionally and everything because it, 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 politically, it, it's, if I disagree with some, I will villainize you, Right? I will take whatever truth I feel like I can grab, which is not even truth, and I will take it to the ultimate extreme to make you into the enemy. But that's not what we do as the people of God. That's not what we're called to. But if we just jump in the river and we float down the river with everyone else, where does it take us? 
right? Places where our lives look nothing like Jesus. Maybe we're social media disciples. We're living in a generation where social media has shaped a generation which says you're nothing more than your comments or opinions. You are a faceless, nameless person and I can reject the image of God that you're created in because you're just a viewpoint or opinion. But that's not what we're called to, right? No, we honor the image of God that everybody's worthy of honor. See, many of us have forgotten that it's love that transforms, right? You ask a lot of Christians, do you think love is more transformative or power is more transformative? And maybe they would tell you because they grew up in church, love, but they live like it's power. But that wasn't the way of Jesus. So what do you do with that? Like, this is the stuff we have to wrestle with. What do you do with the reality that Jesus didn't take the way of power or politics to redeem and transform the world and bring his kingdom, and yet many Christians feel like that's the only way forward? It's because they feel like love is not enough. No, love can't really transform. Love, I don't know if it's going to win, so what do I do? I become a cultural warrior. You know what cultural warriors do? They fight against the culture. I'm going to take a stand and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, kind of this person that doesn't allow any compromise to happen. And I'm going to make tr- sure truth goes forward. How many know sometimes you do take a stand? Those things are not bad altogether. But when you take a position where you're in opposition against the culture and the world around you, how do you love and win a people that you are against? That doesn't work. Jesus didn't take an, a, a position of opposition in the world. No, he lived among them a transformative lifestyle saying, there's a better way. Here's the way of the kingdom. Let me embody it and show you what it means to live in my kingdom. And he did that by love. I can't help but think that Paul may be writing a letter saying, maybe some of us have forgotten that. When you're not intentional about living the way of Jesus, counterculturally, you get sucked in to the ways of the world and how the world operates. Look at Matthew chapter five, verse 38. This is the, the, the pinnacle of Jesus' kingdom on the uh, Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God, what it looks like. He says, you have heard that it was said. This is, he's saying, culturally, this is what the culture says. Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? Makes sense. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, he says, you've heard it said. He's saying the culture says, love your, enemy and, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. How countercultural is that? How different is that from the ways of the world? That, that, that's so opposing from what, what people think and how they act. How do you live that way? How is it possible to walk in that kind of love? And like, you're telling me if somebody hits me on one cheek, turn to them the other? No, I don't want to do that. I want to punch you back. How is that possible? If you walk into the world looking to be validated, I need somebody to build me up. I need, I need my point to be taken. I need, I need to be validated. But that's not how we walk into the world, right? We've been validated by God. We know who we are in Christ. So we walk and live in humility and self-sacrificing love. We listen more than we talk. We're not looking for our way or what our views are. Humility and self-sacrificing love should, be, should drive our actions and behavior. And only the love of God that has captured our hearts and destroyed our pride will empower us to love and live like Jesus. 
in a world, let me tell you, the world we're living in is desperate for love. Acts of kindness. Someone who will listen. To honor someone, even when they don't deserve it. To be bridge builders, to be peacemakers. To see that every person is made in the image of God. The person you strongly disagree with is still made in the image of God. Amen? What are some practical ways to love well in a culture of hatred and division? Some of you are like, this isn't very Christmassy, Pastor. (laughs) Number one is this. We look to be bridge builders and peacemakers. You and I should look for opportunities to be bridge builders. Peacemaking is often not just being passive. It's, It's disrupting the false peace. But we're called to be peacemakers. I was recently watching on the news the Wisconsin Senate debate extremely heated, two political candidates that disliked each other with a passion. And the last question they asked both of them was like, we want you to tell us something you admire about each other. Everybody ever watch this? And you could tell both of them were like, oh no, we spent the last nine months absolutely making each other into be the worst people on the planet. Now what am I going to say? And the Republican or Democratic uh, candidate looks over the Republican candidate. He says, I, he's a family man. I respect that about him. It didn't seem very heartfelt, but he said it, you know. And the Republican candidate looked over the Democratic candidate, and he started to say something, but before he could even get into something uh, admirable, he used it as a weapon and went at him again. And the crowd started booing. And I just looked and said, look what, look what it will do to us, where humility and kindness is seen as a weakness, where I, I need to destroy people. And I'm sure that person stands on a Christian platform right? Justifying the things that we say and do in the name of God. We are bridge builders and peacemakers. Number two, we disagree while honoring the image of God in every person. You can disagree with someone and honor the image of God in them. That we don't have to act like you are nothing more than your opinions. We don't reduce, we don't dehumanize people. We see the good in every person. We were walking, we were talking about King Herod last night in the Magi with my kids. We're in the Advent calendar. And so we talk about different things. And we were talking about King Herod and how bad he was. And so the kids were like, Dad, what about our president? I'm like, yeah, what about him? What do you think about him? And I don't share these opinions with with you because I know in our church, we're all over the place. And that's fine. Have your opinion. It's not my place to tell you what to to do or believe there. And I said, you know, honestly, kids, I said, "I'm, I'm not a huge fan of this president. And I wasn't a huge fan of the last president. But let me tell you what we do. We honor who they are and we will always pray for them. And I was like, where we can build bridges and be peacemakers and where we can back them up and we do that. We look for those opportunities. Where we have to stand in opposition because our faith calls us to, we also do that as well. Because guess what? No political party fits within the kingdom of God. And so we're first and foremost Jesus followers. And I want, you to, I want to tell you that because that's what I tell my kids, right? That we have to be able to honor people regardless of if we agree or disagree. Number three, you have to discern truth from untruth with a heart of humility. We need discernment. That means quick to listen and slow to speak. That means we don't create untrue narratives to justify our opinions with limited or no information to back it up. We don't just jump on a bandwagon. We don't just say things. We don't villainize people with, to, to do this. We, we honor people. We discern truth from untruth. Number four, we don't allow opinions or disagreements to become greater than the mission. I know this isn't very Christmassy, but I think it's important. 
We don't allow our opinions to become greater than the mission. The mission is the good news, that go- the gospel that is rescuing people, right? And so it can easily be lost when all we do is stand against people. How are we doing the things that we're doing? Number five, this is my favorite one. A spiritually formed life, life must drive and shape our views, opinions, and actions. A spiritually formed life. Beware of the person who wants to speak or lead or share their opinion. Beware of the social justice advocate who wants to fight but is void of love. Be weary of the person who has an opinion but doesn't know how to sit at the feet of Jesus as not being spiritually shaped and formed because only by sitting at the feet of Jesus can we love well. I'm telling you, if we do not sit at the feet of Jesus, our good intentions and all of our good actions will come out as anger or manipulation. It will come out sideways. It will come as shame and guilt and condemnation and attack instead of true love. See, God is love. So you and I, are, are, as people, should be driven by love. God created us through love and for love. God's plan of redemption was driven by love. God became flesh and dwelt among us for love. He suffered and took our sin for love. He gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us for love. God will return for his people for love. I want you to stop and think. Everything God has done and and does in our lives is motivated by love because love is not something God does. It is who he is. It's who he is. So what does that mean for us? That has to be the distinguishing characteristic of you and I. See, Advent is a reminder of this, that the people of God are living in darkness. They're waiting, they're crying out for God to move. It's also the reality that God has broken into the darkness with his love. That into the suffering, into the brokenness, God breaks into it with his love. Matthew chapter two is how we're gonna end this morning in the next few minutes we have. We were talking about this last night, the story of the Magi, the, the wise men. They come searching for Jesus and they stop at King Herod. They say, we're looking for the Messiah, the baby that's gonna be born. And King Herod is like, oh, I, I wanna worship him too. So when you find him, come tell me. Now, Herod the Great in scripture, we get a little bit of information, but in history, we get a ton of information about Herod the Great. A guy by the name of Josephus, which is a Jewish historian, wrote two full books about Herod the Great. We get all this non-canonical, non-scripture stories about King Herod. We know so much about his life. He actually was a very successful king, built palaces and fortresses and ports and trade thrived, economics thrived in the time of King Herod. And um, all of these great things that King Herod did or time of relative peace, And yet, if you didn't know this about Herod, he lived as an obsessed man. He was constantly paranoid that someone was going to take his throne. So much so that uh, Herod actually married 10 different women. Uh, He had 10 wives. There's a joke in there somewhere. I'm not going to go there. But um, his life was complex. Let's say it that. And every time he would have a wife, he would have multiple children with that wife. And so if you can imagine, all these sons are being born to King Herod. And guess what? Everybody wants to be king. Everybody. And so Herod was continually paranoid that one of his sons was trying to take his throne. So much so that it was said in history that three of the sons poisoned each other. And then he had several of his sons executed, not because they actually did anything, because he thought they were going to do something. How many know you can have everything and really have nothing? And that's the life of King Herod. So it's not abnormal that in the story of Jesus, in the birth of Jesus, 
we get this story where you have this insecure king and supposedly there's a Messiah that's gonna be born. So what does King Herod do? He says, man, I'm gonna kill every baby boy under the age of two, this infant massacre, this horrible act of violence that takes place. Matthew chapter two, verse 13 says this, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for that child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. There are times where scripture gets really complex and I don't care how much you've studied the Bible or how many degrees you have in the Bible. There are times where it's difficult and this is one of those times. Paul does this all throughout the New Testament. He'll refer to some obscure Old Testament passage and you're like, what is he talking about? And you have to go out back and find the Old Testament passage and figuring out what it was talking about and then apply it to the way Paul used it in the church in certain contexts and it takes a lot of work. Matthew chapter two, verse 18 is quoting Jeremiah 31, 15. Jeremiah, the prophet, is going back and telling a story from Genesis chapter 42. It's complex. This happened in Genesis 42. Jeremiah is talking about it hundreds of years later. Matthew is using it hundreds of years later in the life of Jesus. It's a lot. See, Rachel is noted for her determination to have children. Genesis chapter 30, verse one, Rachel says, give me children or I'll die. And God grants her to request and she actually becomes the mother of the tribes of Israel. But Rachel passes away as she's giving birth to Benjamin. So Jeremiah, the prophet, he picks up on this story that, that Rachel is like this symbolic metaphorical figure of someone who continues to grieve for the people of Israel and all the brokenness and darkness of the world. And then Matthew in the birth story picks up on the way that Jeremiah used this story and he carries it all the way into the birth narrative. Pastor, why, why are you telling us this? Jeremiah and Matthew use Rachel's agony and the birth of Benjamin as a picture of the painful waiting for the Messiah to come. I, I, I love this about scripture because it, it, doesn't, it, it, it doesn't smooth off the edges of life. It, it's almost like this is Matthew and Jeremiah's way of saying, yeah, it sucks. It really does. Life is broken and it gets dark and it's difficult. And simultaneously, the second thing is this, Jeremiah and Matthew use Rachel's difficult story to describe how the Messiah will turn all of our suffering into rejoicing. This is what Matthew's doing in this story. He, he's saying Rachel died in, in childbirth, it was difficult. The people of Israel were carried into exile and many of them passed away, that was dark. He's saying even when Jesus was born, two-year-old infants dying, how many know that's horrific? But Jesus is breaking into the story He's breaking into the darkness and the brokenness of this story and your story with his love and nothing will ever be the same again. Jeremiah 31.3, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing 
kindness. Because his love is never ending and everlasting, your story and my story will have a good ending. It will be joyous. This is why the incarnation, the birth of Jesus is the turning point of human history. That sin and death and suffering and pain doesn't have the final word. That love is here and love will make all things new again. It's the story that that God is telling all the way from Genesis to the story of Jesus. That love transformed, that love wins. Uh, I tell this story that I'm about to tell you every Advent. So some of you who have been around, you're like, oh, I've heard this eight times, nine times. Well, guess what? You're gonna hear it 10 times because it's one of my favorites. And it helps me understand the incarnation story and the love of God. Some of you will recognize it. It's a story about a powerful king, the most powerful king in the whole world. And he fell in love with a simple peasant maiden girl. And he had a problem. I'm in love with her. I wanna win her. But if I bring her into the courts and I ask her to marry me, she's not gonna refuse me. Nobody refuses the king. See, the king was both powerful, but he was also good and loving. And he didn't want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, he wanted a friend. He, he wanted somebody who would choose him, not someone he had simply chosen. What does this king do? What does he do? He decided that he was going to renounce his throne. All of the power, all of the things that came with it, all the glory, all of the wealth, all of the fame, he renounced it all. He took on the life of a simple peasant farmer, the clothing, modesty, all in order to win the hand of this young maiden girl, to allow her to choose him and not just him choosing her. See, the incarnation of Jesus God in the flesh answers the question once and for all, what does God think about you and me? What does God think about me? Well, he loves you so much that he gave up everything. He stepped out of eternity. He got rid of all the benefits and he suffered. He humbled himself because that's what love does, right? That's what love does. Love is self-sacrificing. Love is humble. Love gives of themselves. Love is vulnerable. Love takes upon themselves even when they don't deserve it. That's what love does. We've been on this Advent journey. We've lit the candle of hope in the midst of despair, peace in a world of chaos, right? Joy when there seems to be no joy. And this morning, even as we live in a culture of hatred and division, How many know God is love, amen? How many know you and I are called to love? The defining characteristics of our life as the people of God is that we are love, that we allow the love of God to break through into our lives and we give love to those around us. If you have your communion elements and you wanna begin to prepare, we're gonna take in just a few minutes. I want to lead us 
just for a minute into a time of reflection, if you would, just right where you're at. Just bow your heads, close your eyes with me. And allow the love of God this morning just to wash over your heart. And in a world of division and hatred and bitterness and pride, in a world that's all about me, what I can get, my way. Jesus came and showed us a radically different way to live. And he said, don't be confused. This is the way to life. This is the way to eternal life. This is what transforms you, transforms the world. It is enough and it will win. And I want you to know this morning, City Church, I don't know how dark it is for you right now in this moment, but God is breaking into your darkness with his light, with his love. And he's saying, what I started, I will finish. And even though that you may be walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm gonna make all things right again one day. It will all be made new. And we rest in that today this Advent journey, we walk out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus. We thank you for that, Father. Let us not miss the power of this Advent season. God in the flesh humbled himself, came down for us, for us, that God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave not to condemn us, but to rescue us, to save us. This morning, if you wanna take your communion elements, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, remember me, what I've done for you. Let's take the body of Christ this morning. shed for you and I and he says I have given everything all of me for you to cover your sin to wash you clean so that I can spend eternity with you in communion with you as I created you let's take the blood of Jesus this morning amen would you thank God right there where you're at practice thankfulness and gratitude this morning. God, that we love because you loved us first. Thank you, Father, for rescuing us, for reaching and redeeming us, Father. God, help us to live that way. Let us love well this week and every week, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come forward any of our prayer team that's in the room. If you have anything that you just need someone to pray with you this morning, maybe you're walking through something, maybe you made a decision to follow Jesus. Uh, these people are gonna be here and would love to pray for you uh, as we're dismissed. If you're a first time guest, I'd love to meet you in the welcome room just across the lobby, just a free gift, just our way of saying thanks for being our guest. And then this Thursday night, 5.30 and 7, we would love for you, your family, come join us. We'll have some things in the lobby, some refreshments, but also a place to take pictures 
uh, and just hang out. Uh, so you can come a little bit early or stay a little bit late. Um, we we want to celebrate our kids. will be up here with us some, for some of the service, singing a song. We always do the, the Christmas story together. It would just be a powerful time of celebrating, singing the Christmas songs, all of those things. Uh, bittersweet, because it is our last Christmas service here at the ballet, but we're excited, <clears throat> excuse me, excited for what's next, amen? Amen. Let's sing with our mission statement, go live it out wherever you are, be the gospel. Woke my father from 